I must have been about nine the first time it happened. I was, as I may have told you, a serious, weird, Jesus-y kid. I was the kind of kid who had a days-long argument in third grade with my best friend who was a Seventh-day Adventist about whether it was better to worship on Saturday or Sunday. He quoted scripture to me saying that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That was his proof text. And I don't remember what my counter argument was, but I am sure that I had one. I was the kind of kid who in the girls' bathroom in elementary school asked my friend if she knew anyone who was going to live forever, and then I told her I was and that she could too. Zing. <clears throat> it was around this time when I was developing this inner theology based on my own strange mix of like bookishness and devoutness and otherworldliness that it started happening. I started having eternity attacks. When I was almost asleep at night, I would be yanked awake, eyes wide open in the dark room. I was fully alert and suddenly totally aware at nine that I was really going to die. Like my little m life on earth wasn't even a blip on the cosmic radar. And if that wasn't overwhelming enough, then I'd start thinking about eternal life and heavenness and uh, uh, how awful heaven is, how it just stretches on and, and on. And it was only made bearable by the alternative, as my father would cheerfully bark when I asked tentatively about how scary heaven was. Well, better than the alternative. In my childhood theology, the one I internalized, Salvation meant being saved from the greater of two evils. Salvation meant the difference between eternal damnation, which was too awful to imagine, and heaven, which was slightly less awful and therefore slightly more imaginable and still terrifying. That's just the way it was. It was reality. And it didn't, of course, matter how I felt about reality. What I did with that theology, that reality. It changed over the years, along with some other kind Christians. I would sometimes shrug kind of ruefully at the awfulness of some people's eternal, eternal suffering. I sometimes actively held the tension between an all-loving, all-powerful God who would nonetheless allow people to suffer eternally and what's more couldn't do anything about it unless those people prayed this one little prayer in their lifetime I sometimes decided that I couldn't believe in a God like that. I sometimes decided that it must be simply that I did not believe in a God like that. And sometimes, sometimes, very rarely, when I was young, I met or heard about Christians who seemed to believe that God was not, after all, like that at all. Not able to let people suffer eternally. And my question at those times was, could that be true? I think my question was actually, could what I had learned about heaven and hell and God and the order of the whole cosmos and sin and salvation, could that all be wrong? David Bentley Hart is an Eastern Orthodox scholar with a, I didn't write this down, but he has a great beard. You should Google him. Um, he's a philosopher and a writer. And a few years ago, he published a new translation of the New Testament. That's the version that Anne read from this morning. And maybe, especially if you're familiar with that passage, maybe your ears caught some of the strangeness. It, if it's very familiar to you, maybe it even sounded more complicated than it normally does. It's certainly more clear in the Greek of the New Testament. 
The word that we've read that way means more properly, according to him, an age or like a long period of time or just like a substantial interval. There are, there were other Greek words that mean endless, that mean eternity actually, but those aren't the words that Paul used here in Romans and they definitely weren't the words that Jesus used since he wasn't speaking Greek at all. That's just how it got written down. Who cares though? Like truly who cares? We pastors have been calling this sermon series Progressive Church 101 and we have not meant it as a compliment. And this is why. Like, is progressive church all just Greek parsing to wriggle out of damnation? It's like all intellect, no heart, all intellect, no heat, all intellect, no stakes. These days, I don't spend that much time talking about hell. I don't spend that much time with other people who talk about hell. After five years of being church together, I don't know what most of you believe about hell. What I do know is that I meet people all the time, grown people who are still kept awake at night wondering if what they were taught could be wrong. Could it be wrong, they wonder, in the dark of their room? Could it be wrong that a loving God is willing to let some people, many, many hordes of real human beings, suffer unimaginably for eternity? Could it, these people wonder, be wrong that an all-powerful God who, in our story, the gospel, I mean, the gospel claims that God has broken the bonds of death and sin forever. That God is unable to do anything about those people who have not accepted Jesus into their hearts. Could it be possible, they wonder in the dark of their rooms, that they are allowed to believe instead in an all-loving, all-powerful, generative, forgiving, gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love? Listen, even for those who consider themselves to be traditional or orthodox, the idea of hell has softened over the millennia. For a time, like say up through the sixth century, a lot of Christians could talk with some certainty and not that much discomfort about a real physical hell where the vast majority of the human race would suffer eternally. People shrugged up until like the year 1200 over babies who were unlucky enough to die unbaptized. 1200, 1250, babies got rescued from hell and put into limbo where they could live not in bliss but in like contentment. Now, many people have further softened their understanding of hell to be a place that's more or less chosen by the people who are there, chosen by people who are so hateful toward God that they choose by their own rejection of God's love to be there. And or some people believe Hell is just reserved for the very worst of the very worst, like the top billing despots and torturers. But if you actually ask whether hell is real or if anyone at all actually suffers there eternally, it's a surprising contra- surprisingly controversial question. Because for some folks, maybe some of us, like I said, I don't know, For some people, the question is, if you start to question heaven and hell, doesn't the whole thing fall apart? If there's no heaven and hell, what's the point? What do you think we're doing here? Like, what is the gospel story to you? It's a story of a human being somehow maybe uniquely one with God. 
a teacher, a model of compassion, a model of righteous anger, a sacrifice, an offering. The teacher was killed by the state for taking the unorthodox position that forgiveness is available freely to everyone. The unorthodox position that healing is abundant and free, that sin is not the cause of illness or death, that no one has to do anything to deserve liberation. That teacher was killed and then somehow was alive again, and by that death and resurrection, you are what? What does it mean to you? There was a time when I came to believe that half-remembered, deeply ingrained sentence, if by one man came death, so too by one man came salvation. I believed it even though some guy I met on a plane or maybe a date or maybe at a conference told me that if I don't literally believe in Adam, I can't literally believe in Christ. Well, watch me. There was an earlier time, a brief time, when I came to believe the reality of hell and ruefully, not quite, definitely regretfully shrugged. There was an earlier time than that when I held the tension between a loving God and the eternal suffering of most of humanity, a humanity that God had created out of love, a humanity that God nurtured and learned from and liberated, a humanity that God lived among, making their home among us, a humanity with whom God is pleased to dwell. But I was a child when I thought that way. And when I was a child, as Paul also wrote, I thought like a child. I was scared like a child. I needed permission like a child. And when I grew, I put childish things away. I had to. Our faith, this tradition, I mean, maybe I shouldn't say ours, it's a grown tradition. I don't mean it's for adults. I mean it's old. It is time, it is past time to ask hard, grown-up questions about a faith that is still taught in such a way that keeps children up at night, that keeps adults up at night, that sends adults to therapy because they were weaned on the idea of a God who loves them but will let them suffer forever if they don't get it right. Believe right. That, of course, is what the word orthodoxy means, right belief. Actually, it comes from the Greek for right opinion. It's a faith that has softened the idea of hell, but won't reconcile the tension between an all-powerful God of love who has overturned death and sin, but only for those who get the story and its interpretation right. David Bentley Hart says that another word for tension is contradiction. And, of course, the scripture is full of contradictions. But this one... This particular one might just be something for a progressive church 101 full of grown people to take on with a little Greek parsing. Because the stakes are high enough. Because hearts are broken over this. Because the heat of hell burns hot. The language of the Bible is complicated. In places, not here in Romans particularly, but in some places the grammar is so bad it's almost indecipherable. The meaning, even in the Greek, isn't clear in places. And generations of translators, this is so boring, I know, but generations of translators have brought to the text a desire to make it plain, a good desire to make it plain. Generations of translators have also necessarily brought to the text their own theologies, their own traditions, their own sense of what's true, their own sense of what it would be wrong to question. So generation after generation have clung to a translation that preaches original inherited sin. Generation after generation have clung to the world word eternal, although it's not there, not like that anyway. 
Generation after generation have recognized metaphors and rhetorical devices, but not when it comes to hell or the afterlife. Generations have chosen to squint at scripture like ours today and figure that it must mean something else, although what it says is that by one act of righteousness came a rectification of life for all human beings. It must mean something else. Scripture like Paul writing in 1 Corinthians, just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be given life. That must mean something different. Or later in Romans, for God shut up everyone in obstinacy so that God might show mercy to everyone. I have to say, neither I nor David Bentley Hart are cutting off the ends of verses that go on to say, if they believe right, or if they become Christians, or if they're baptized. The book of Titus, for the grace of God has appeared, giving salvation to all human beings. Or Corinthians 2, whoever wrote Corinthians 2. God was in the anointed, reconciling the cosmos to God's self, not accounting their trespass to them, and placing in us the word of reconciliation. And this amazing rendition of John 12, 32. This is Jesus, the anointed, speaking. He says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will drag everyone to me. Or also John 12, also Jesus. For I came not that I might judge the cosmos, but that I might save the cosmos. The cosmos, it's Greek, it's English, it's the gospel, it's universal salvation, and it's not some late-breaking, I wish it were so, progressive church, one-on-one pablum. Nor is this every instance of the anointed, the Christ, saving the whole cosmos. It is a grown church's complicated rendering of, reckoning with what salvation could mean if it was actually, truly for everyone. Is that not orthodox enough for you? To believe? Is that not hard enough? Is that not Christian enough to believe that everything exists because of love? Is it not faithful enough to believe that out of love, the transcendent divine somehow invaded human history in such a way that nothing can stay the way it was? That there is now no separation between human beings and the divine, that there is now no separation among us? It is, it, is it not orthodox enough a call for you to love your neighbors, all of them, to love them as yourself because God has and will reconcile to God's self the entire cosmos? Is the hell that God out of love has closed for eternity to any human being not terrifying enough? Is the heaven of God's radical intervention of love not beautiful enough? Is our God, our faith, this love itself not broad enough and deep enough and eternal enough to allow these questions and reversals and examinations? It may be unorthodox to say, but they are enough, I mean. God can handle it. The faith can withstand the questions. Love is made for this very work. And it is, in any case, far better than the alternative. 